You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps no era of biblical interpretation is less appreciated than the Middle Ages. After all, the medievals were at best just perpetuators of patristic readings, and at worst, the most unbounded and fantastic of allegorists. If the scholars of the Middle Ages are recovered these days, it's usually for their mystically or philosophically inflected theologies, not their contributions to exegesis. Yet, as Ian Christopher Levy argues, the medieval interpreters of the Bible have contributed greatly to the Church's exegetical tradition, and not only by preserving the late classical fathers. They were both devout and analytical thinkers, balancing historical literal nuance with the fullness implied by divine authorship. I'm David Grubbs, and in this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, I'll be talking with Dr. Ian Christopher Levy, Professor of Historical Theology at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island, and the author of Introducing Medieval Biblical Interpretation, The Sense of Scripture and Premodern Exegesis, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Levy. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, I certainly am looking forward to this conversation, and I hope our listeners are as well, because I came into your book uh, with a lot of the caricatures caricatures of medieval biblical interpretation in my head, and I, I know you're familiar with those, that in the Middle Ages it was all just free-form allegorizing, you know, it's basically limited only by the interpreter's imagination, and a lot of it seems pretty silly. Why do we have that caricature? Well, I think that um, part of that is really the heritage of the Reformation. Mm. Um, You know, well, let's just take Luther, for example. Luther, of course, was raised in uh, the... Of late medieval schools, which um, certainly were being influenced very much by uh, humanism, and Luther was indeed making the most of, for instance, Erasmus's Novum Instrumentum. But Luther definitely came out of that medieval um, that medieval world as an Augustinian friar at turn of the century, 16th century, um, Erfurt, and then in Wittenberg. And while Luther did not uh, reject uh, typology, for instance, and not every form of allegory, he largely dispensed with a lot of the um, traditional medieval reading of scripture in terms of the fourfold reading of the text. I don't want to say that that happened across the board for Luther because he was a very subtle thinker, but by and large, Luther was interested at getting at what he considered to be the simple grammatical theological sense of the text. And he believed, perhaps incorrectly in many regards, but he believed that much of uh, that simple evangelical sense of the text that he and Philip Melanchthon were looking for had been obscured in medieval biblical exegesis. So on the one hand, he would praise someone like um, the great Franciscan exegete Nicholas of Lyra, who was writing in the early 14th century, and and Luther was in dialogue with Lyra, certainly early on when he commented on scripture and on the Psalms and the letters of Paul. But he largely came to reject Lyra's whole project and therefore the uh, medieval structure beneath it. And I think that was then placed on an even larger scale about the um, just a larger response to Rome on issues of justification and ecclesiology and really was calling for what Luther and others believed was, they wouldn't have called it a new hermeneutic, but they would have called it a, a, a more accurate or authentic hermeneutic. So, um, I would say that's the long answer to your question. I would say that it really started with the Reformation, but then certainly increased generally among um, Protestant thinkers from that point forward. Hmm. 
when did you uh reflecting on your own uh career as i as i was uh, sort of looking at your uh at your faculty page there at providence i saw uh, just the list of publications of, as you've worked through in general and specific um, many different angles on this larger uh, topic. When did you first encounter a medieval text that showed you that medieval Bible interpretation was more than that caricature that, that led you to want to dig deeper into it? Well, um, I think that I would say it really was in graduate school when I was reading some of the late medieval theologians. Um, I was thinking of John Wycliffe, for instance, hmm. who I wrote my dissertation on, though I wrote on the Eucharist. It was also Wycliffe's interpretation as applied to the Eucharist. Now, Wycliffe was thoroughly a man of the 14th century. He embraced the fourfold sense of scripture. He was a great devotee of Lyra, and also, for that matter, Thomas Aquinas, to whom Lyra himself was indebted. Um, but that's because that was at the beginning of my studies, and I was interested in, in the late Middle Ages. And there was really no way, to, I found, no way to study anything in the late medieval period, whether it's sacraments, ecclesiology, church and state questions, without, of course, encountering the Bible because the Bible was at the basis of every single discussion or debate. And therefore, around every turn, I encountered their uh, modus operandi for reading the scriptures. Um, sometimes it was very straightforward. Sometimes it could be more elaborately allegorical. Um, but they were always very careful, I remember, um, and, I, and I, I mean, and to this day, I would acknowledge that they were always very careful about balancing their reading of Scripture with other texts from Scripture, the old idea that Scripture interprets itself, and that every allegory, and this goes back to Augustine, but every allegorical reading, every spiritual reading, nevertheless, must have a literal correlate somewhere else in scripture to underpin it. Um, so uh, that would be that. I, but what I would just point out that I did my master's degree, and my original plan was to be a doctor of New Testament studies. I saw myself as being a New Testament critic, and especially I was interested in Paul. And as I pursued Paul, I was interested in the way that Paul was interpreted later in the tradition. And that led mm. me to put aside New Testament studies and go into historical theology. And that would introduce me to um, medieval biblical interpretation. That's really interesting. Um, it, it makes me think of Two, two points, especially in, in your book, where uh, I, I was really interested in your uh, in your discussion of Wycliffe later on, uh, but also uh, a figure that I'd not encountered before. Um, not even sure if I'm saying it right. Uh, Hamo of Auxerre, uh, who yes, right, that's that yeah, correct. Hamo of Auxerre, no. yeah, who wrote some uh, who wrote uh, commentaries on Paul. Um, I'd, I'd really like to get to them later. Um, in your introduction, though, one of the reasons that you cite for why it's useful for us to look back to medieval Bible interpreters is that the modern historical critical method, which has been used uh, for for so long in in modern biblical uh, hermeneutics, is is limited in some important ways. So how is that method useful, and where are the points that its usefulness wanes and these medieval Bible interpreters need to be brought back in? Well, I think it's limited in the sense that, and let me be clear, of course, when we talk about historical critical method, right. that's a, a, a catch-all, which there are so many sub-genres of historical critical method. And each one of them, in its own way, I think is quite valuable. Um, and I actually teach at Providence College. I teach undergraduates. Um, 
and even master's level students um, introduction to the New Testament. And I'm very interested in historical and sociological and grammatical research. But so were the medieval theologians. Um, and they got all of that from a careful um, education from reading Jerome and reading Augustine and so forth, that of course you want to understand everything you can about the culture and the language and the geography. Because if you're going to understand the historical basis of the text, you have to know all of that. And they read Josephus just like modern scholars read Josephus today, for instance. Um, but the historical critical method, speaking broadly, won't go beyond, if you will, the historical grammatical sense of the text. Um, there is no allegorical reading. There is no typological reading. Um, and in a sense, it seems to be almost um, rendered by historical critics off limit, at least, maybe illegitimate, even so, it's interesting that um, in 1993, the Pontifical Biblical Commission um, produced a very valuable guide on, on the reading of scripture. And while doing full justice to historical critical methodology, and of course there are many Catholic historical critics, um, they talk about the census plenior, the idea that there's a fuller sense beyond the literal sense, that indeed we have to take the historical aspect very seriously. So if we're reading the prophet Isaiah, we have to be very uh, concerned about exactly what was transpiring in, in uh, the northern and southern kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah and so forth. But that doesn't mean that what was happening then exhausts the meaning of the text. Maybe there's something more. We can go beyond that, doing full justice to the literal historical situation. After all, God became incarnate in a real time and place. History does matter. But there can be transcendent spiritual um, truths that nevertheless are also being communicated. And I think that if we can just open up the prospect of going beyond the historical grammatical level uh, without doing any injustice or violence to it, then um, it just opens up richer uh, spiritual meaning of a text that after all is written from the perspective of faith for the sake of the faithful. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, I, I found... Uh, I found that re a, re a really helpful way of of uh, seeing where where these sources become useful, um, especially at that at that most basic conceptual level of what kind of text are we reading. Um, the uh, when it, you, you begin your discussion of the Middle Ages you know, with the discussion of the fathers, so. Uh, they anchored their uh, the medieval Bible interpreters anchor their theories of scripture reading in theology that they're inheriting from the fathers, not just methods, but their theology. So, what are some of these patristic theological claims that make well, among other things, that make it possible to read a miscellany of Hebrew and Greek texts as a unified and holy work? Well, I think, yes, I think you make a, a very good point, because if there isn't this underlying theological core, then are we left with um, an assortment of methods that may or may not be useful? And I think you put your finger on uh, a central issue, and I, um, I begin the book, or almost at the very beginning, speaking about Irenaeus in the second century. Yeah. And Irenaeus, I think, really sets the tone for a Christological understanding of history and therefore of scripture. 
the presence of the word throughout the Old and the New Testament, uh, this unifying Christological core to, as I say, the history of the cosmos, certainly the history of salvation, and therefore to the Old and the New Testament as records to God's saving work in Christ. And that's why, for instance, then if we move ahead to Augustine, for instance, among others, he can read the Psalms of David on the one hand as being indeed about David, but then also having a Christological reference. And um, in that sense, tying together the two Testaments around a single person, namely the divine person, the second person of the Trinity. And I think that anchors everything, therefore. If everything is ultimately focused back to the Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, and God, triune and one substance, three persons, just those basic creedal um, affirmations provide the, the framework or the superstructure into which everything else can be fitted. If you can, if you can look at the uh, at the presumptions of the historical critical method that say we must read this text within its time and its place, and look for the intention of of the author in that time and place. Um, if the author becomes a, if the author is in fact one trans-historical author. <laughs> yeah. Um then 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 suddenly there there's there's a whole new whole new working assumption. Well, that's it. The issue of divine authorship that the Holy Spirit is the author of scripture and that Christ is at the center of the scripture. He is the the fulcrum. He's at the center of history as I've mentioned and therefore at the center of scripture. And it's the denial or simply the unwillingness to consider a divine author and therefore a fuller spiritual sense that I think is um, unnecessarily limiting. The human author, as all of the patristic and medieval writers knew, again, is very important and you want to ground all interpretation in that human author, whether it's Isaiah or David or Solomon or St. Paul. Um, but as we know from historical critical studies, however brilliant the analysis, however much uh, history and, and uh, archaeology and, and grammatical expertise is brought to bear, it's impossible to say with any certainty exactly what St. Paul meant um, uh, about a given, when he wrote a given passage in the first letter to the Corinthians. There may be consensus among some scholars as to what he meant, um, and that will change perhaps over the decades, and it's all valuable as so far as it goes, and I'm not gainsaying it by any means. But if that's going to be the beginning and the end of all uh, biblical analysis, then it's going to be constantly shifting um, and really won't uh, provide I don't want to say a static view because the fathers in the medieval certainly did not have a static view of scripture. They were always encountering scripture anew, but um, you need to have something with a measure of stability. And I think the divine authorship and the Christological core provide you with that basic uh, structure within which to do biblical interpretation. One of the uh, one of the things that I knew coming into the book, because um, I I don't know, 
you wouldn't have known this about me, uh, but I am primarily a professor of literature. I teach, uh, I teach English for literature, um, but also uh, I teach uh, courses with works by Homer and Virgil and Dante. And because I teach Dante, I have to talk about um, the uh, the different uh, the different levels and types of allegorical and theological reading of texts um, that are important for for dealing with the Divine Comedy. So those were things that I was familiar with. What I hadn't uh, realized was the degree of subtlety and development that there was beginning with figures like Origen of sorting through what it meant for something to be literal and what it meant for something to be figurative. Obviously I can't expect for you to tease all of that out in this conversation, but uh, if you could at least maybe sketch some of the some of the reasons why it's not as simple as saying just what's literal and what's allegory. Um, Make that well, complicated for us. <laughs> the issue of the literal sense um, is actually a complicated one. And by the late Middle Ages, by the 14th and 15th century, what constitutes the literal sense actually becomes uh, very complicated as the late medieval universities develop highly sophisticated theories of logical grammatical analysis which really um, are the basis of, 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 of logic uh, to this day as it's practiced by logicians, by philosophers, by linguists. So what constitutes the literal stem? Um, is it simply the bare proposition as it stands on the page, or is it tied to the intention of the author, whether that author be human or divine? And Origen and, um, and the medieval theologians as well recognized, of course, that people speak in a kind of, um, if you will, a common parlance, which allows for metaphor and simile. And that can all belong to a greater literal sense. In other words, a literal sense can encompass poetic speech without lapsing in, or I should say, without moving on to, say, allegory or tropology or anagogy, different levels. The literal sense is actually quite broad, and they recognize that. Um, and if you look at the way, for instance, Origen read uh, the book of Genesis, um, he he said, listen, I mean, some things there you can take as pretty factual, but other things were never meant to be taken completely according to the letter. The literal sense, in other words, was broad enough that the authorial intention was always to communicate something here um, metaphorically and poetically. So... And the, this this was the thing that, that I found so fascinating. If the literary is so full and contains uh, the uh, the author intended figurative, what then is the role of the allegorical, the anagogical, etc.? Well, that's that's a good question. So typically, the idea. Going back to um, uh, the, the Southern French monk, John Cassian, who himself had studied with the uh, Egyptian fathers and then presents a record of that, um, John Cassian left the tradition with a, a classic formula, and he used the city of Jerusalem as an example. The literal, according to the literal sense, Jerusalem is indeed the historical city in Israel, Palestine, um, and therefore what the prophets say about the the fall of Jerusalem and so forth belongs to the literal sense. But allegorically, Jerusalem is the church, and tropologically or morally, Jerusalem is the human soul. 
And anagogically, Jerusalem is the heavenly Jerusalem and our heavenly homeland. So that you could read the same text in a prophet talking about Jerusalem. And you might indeed find four different levels of meaning. So the allegory really would be, if they say, what you are to believe. In other words, not simply what the text says, allowing for metaphor and poetic license, but what kind of doctrinal um, uh, information you are to take from that. And on a tropological level, what is it instructing you to do morally, how to live, how to draw closer to God? And then finally, anagogically, how is it presenting you with some kind of guide uh, beyond this world to the heavenly homeland? Um, so uh, in that sense, you move into doctrine and into morals and into eschatology, whereas the literal sense is perhaps the broadest of the four, but at least you're still, if you will, on the ground, as it were. Hmm. So, so to, in spite of all of that breadth and subtlety that can be found within the literal, um, the allegorical is inviting you into the heavenly mind behind the text, so to speak? Yes. Well, I mean, we could say that the spiritual senses, and the spiritual senses refer to allegory, tropology, and anagogy. The spiritual senses are bringing you beyond the text um, into something that really lies at the heart of Christian belief and, and Christian life. Yes. And that is why, uh, and this I found incredibly interesting too, uh, the different medieval writers from early on um, commenting, uh, speaking about uh, the particular kind of life that someone should lead spiritually um, in order to be able to interpret Scripture properly. Well, yes, I mean, that's right. The idea is that Scripture, as a sacred text, as a living text, and the product of a, a, a living God and a living person, the Holy Spirit, is constantly... Um, challenging the reader to enter into a conversation, really. And you have to be disposed to be part of that conversation. And therefore, essentially, an unspiritual person cannot read a spiritual text. Um, otherwise, you'll make all manner of mistakes. You'll never be able to get perhaps beyond the bare historical sense of the text if you haven't prepared yourself uh, spiritually for this encounter with the, with the divine. And uh, that is a constant theme, I think, throughout the whole book, that, you know, if you think about the various people that we encounter in the book, we encounter um, people living in monasteries, in religious houses, members of religious orders, or even the secular university men like Gerson and Wycliffe or Henry of Ghent, who weren't part of orders, were nevertheless themselves priests in a university system that considered itself thoroughly chartered um, for the sake of preserving the truth of the Christian faith in a Christian world. And there was just no way to, to, to read the text that didn't demand the totality of the person precisely as a spiritual believing person um, and someone who could be rewarded increasingly by conforming themselves to what the text is calling them toward. And that could even be, you know, mystical contemplation and peace and tranquility and illumination within the spiritual life. I really feel like our discussions uh, 
these days about uh, about reading the Bible and the, and and the the place of of Bible study in the ordinary Christian's life of piety. Um, I really feel like it's suffered for us not having that attitude towards the towards that activity explicitly made part of it. I know you don't make that move necessarily in the book, but it, but that's that's one of the applications that as I was reading it I kept thinking how 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 little did I take seriously what I was doing um even when I took it very seriously there was a way in which I didn't see myself as as integrated with the object of my study um that uh I I I feel like that way of of viewing uh scripture interpretation is is really uh, really highlights one of the another uh another point that I found uh interesting and and I just would like to hear some more about it is uh the the glossa ordinaria um the 12th century uh, 12th century if i remember rightly a uh, yeah. collection of uh, older medieval or older uh, patristic and medieval, I guess, commentary on scripture, kind of all gathered together so that you could see what the whole tradition says about a text. Um, that feels so alien to me, um, and I imagine it probably would to many uh, many current readers. So. How did the Glossa Ordinaria develop, and how did it practically and conceptually shape the way later medieval interpreters did their job? Well, I think uh, to answer that very briefly, we go back even to the ninth century with the Carolingian uh, biblical commentators. As you, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, Charlemagne. Um, began a kind of uh, renovatio, this renewal of, of, of learning and culture um, in his kingdom among the Franks. And at the basis of this renewal was not only going to be you know, the recovery of classical uh, methods of, of logic and grammar and rhetoric, and hence the preservation and the copying of all sorts of classical texts from the Latin tradition, Cicero and Quintilian and so forth. But this was all going to be applied to scripture. And a lot of the Carolingian um, authors, people like um, uh, Claude, uh, Torin and Rabanus, Morris and others, they began to go through the voluminous works of the fathers in order to produce compact biblical commentaries. So, for instance, if someone like um, Claude of uh, Turin is going to um, produce uh, produce a a, a, um, a commentary. Um, on the letters of Paul, then he's going to work through Augustine and Jerome primarily, but others, and he's going to draw out of many of their writings, including their own commentaries, but beyond that, he's going to draw out portions of their work and basically just present it, not so much as his own, but as an editor, if you will. Um, and what the Carolingians did sort of laid the groundwork then for the work of the, the um, compilers of the Gloss in the 12th century. They had all of this digested, edited material from the Carolingians in the 9th century, but a lot of it was very bulky, it was very repetitious, they often, um, it, was, it was unwieldy in a sense, how could you present, for instance, a commentary on uh, the Gospel of Matthew or on Paul's letter to the Romans that would um, give you the best of the of the best, as it were? How could you have, you know, 
just a little snippet of Augustine here that would clarify one verse, and then a piece from Jerome, and a piece from Origen, and, and, a, and maybe even a bit from the Venerable Bede as well, and have it all at your fingertips. So part of it was also the way they placed it on a page. They put the biblical text in the middle, often in larger letters, in between the biblical text, in between the lines, the interlinear gloss or commentary were just small grammatical notes that were written in that could help the reader just understand the, the practicalities of what a word might mean or how it's connected to another word. And then in the margins, the so-called marginal gloss was this collation in short snippets of all of this patristic material so that when someone went to lecture on scripture in the classroom in the later 12th century and then all the way into the 15th and 16th century, they would be delivering a lecture, giving their own commentary, but in constant dialogue with the commentary of the tradition, which has been placed on the page right in front of them sort of a handy lecture note guide from the tradition. Um, this was put together over a series of decades at the Cathedral School of Lens in northern France, and it was very quickly adapted in the Parisian school um, by the mid to late 12th century, to the point that when people delivered lectures by the late 12th century on scripture, they would comment not only on scripture, but they would comment on the gloss. And therefore, they would be giving their students, um, if you will, a commentary on the commentary as part of the dialogue of the lecture hall. If, if, that, if that helps, I don't know. That was maybe a convoluted answer, but... No, uh, that, I, th I find the, the history of that uh, incredibly helpful. So it's um, a bit like, maybe a bit like study Bibles today that have explanatory notes, but I have a hard time imagining a, a Bible with explanatory notes so prestigious that they would also become part of... <laughs> Yeah, almost a almost a a chorus backing up the exposition of the text. Yeah, you, you make a very good point because, of course, that would never happen uh, today. And it's amazing the kind of uh, staying power that the gloss had. I mean, for many centuries, the gloss was the authoritative reference text, not to the exclusion of course, of other things, but uh, not to go too far afield, but one of the interesting things about the later Middle Ages was, and especially with humanism in the 15th century, was a, uh, an attempt to start reading the fathers again in the original. In other words, mm, let's yeah. not just read portions of the fathers, let's read the entire Augustine here. So, for instance, Luther's own Augustinian order made a point of um, compiling the manuscripts of Augustine and publishing Augustine's work so that they could be read by members of the Augustinian order in their fullness. And, and of course, uh, Erasmus, for instance, worked on a correction of the fathers to, to, and, and published their text in, in a, you know, a, a corrected form you know, eliminating various errors and, and so forth to produce good editions. And of course, the printing press made all of that possible by the late uh, 15th century. Um, but you're right, throughout the Middle Ages, there was this idea in which the gloss was the text. And um, some people pushed back against it. There were times, in fact, I, I mentioned that in the late 12th century, one Parisian scholar, actually originally an Englishman, Robert M. Malone, said it's gotten to the point that people are reading the gloss and they're forgetting to read the Bible. 
You know, they're so interested in reading the commentary that they that they're not even actually looking at the text anymore. Now, he he was uh, he was upset about that, but he was clearly uh, cutting against the tide. Um, the gloss became the center of all instruction. You have to enter into dialogue with the fathers. You might go beyond that, and if you had more and more access to patristic text, you could. Um, but the idea that you would just read the Bible without the gloss just didn't happen. Um, in fact, most Bibles you find from the Middle Ages uh, are, if, if they're Bibles as opposed to standalone commentaries, if they're Bibles, they are glossed Bibles. And likewise, I would say, if you moved from the theology faculty over to the faculty of canon law, the canon lawyers were all reading Gratian's Decretum with its own ordinary gloss as well, in much the same wow. structure. So if you look at the uh, the gloss on the Decretum and then the gloss on the uh, papal decretal, both from the 13th century, you'll find the text in the middle, the canon law text in the middle, and then the margins are filled with the commentary of the canon lawyer. So whether it was law or theology, and after all, canon law was essentially all about ecclesiology in one form or another, the idea is that you were always reading in dialogue with the tradition. You were never reading it alone. Um, you always had to you weren't a slave to the tradition. You were entitled to disagree. In fact, Thomas Aquinas says that in the study of theology, only scripture can be considered absolutely infallible and therefore the basis for an irrefutable theological conclusion. He said, even the fathers, as much as we venerate them, they are only probable. You can rely on them, but at the end of the day, they are, yes, authoritative, but not perfect. And you're entitled to disagree with them. But you have to be in dialogue with them, nevertheless. Is there a way in which we would, uh, per, in, in which especially folks who are, who are coming from uh, the background of the Reformation tradition, um, is there a way in which we might benefit from continuing to have that dialogue without demanding that they be that that those additional commentators uh those additional witnesses to the tradition be the infallible guide that the scriptures are i i, I guess that is to say do, do 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 people from the from the reform, from a more protestant background uh do those old authorities have to be infallible to be useful is there a way in which we could we should we should still be in conversation while recognizing their fallibility? Well, I think that in that sense we would, as I say, follow the the medieval model that the that scripture alone is infallible, and but we venerate uh, the tradition of the fathers as. I mean, if they're reduced simply to being um, commentators among others, you know, um, then obviously they lose a lot of their auctoritas. Um, they lose right. a lot of their, their weight. And uh, in that sense, they might be read as offering an interesting insight or perhaps not. Um, but there would be very little, it, it wouldn't be compelling. Uh, the, the medievalists worked under the idea that people like Augustine and Jerome, uh, Ambrose and Gregory the Great were holy men who were to some degree inspired, not inspired like a prophet or a biblical writer, certainly, uh, but nevertheless were operating under a divine light and therefore were not simply human commentators, 
among others. Um, interestingly, in the medieval schools, traditionally, when you were referring to the um, argument or the position of one of your contemporaries, you never referred to him by name. You would always use hmm. the, uh, the Latin term quidam. Um, quidam dicit or quidam uh, dicunt. Some people say or someone say, you'd never mention them by name because they're not worthy of being mentioned by name. Well, on the other hand, and these were smart guys, I mean, you would think they would get their due, but <laughs> the only people, you know, you wouldn't mention Thomas Aquinas or St. Bonaventure by name if you, you know, or John Scotus or any of them, if you were, if you were their contemporaries at Paris or Oxford, but you would always cite, you know, Sanctus Augustinus, um, and because indeed they were saints, and that's the difference. They were saints. It didn't make them infallible, as I said, but it placed them on a higher level than the master of theology in the lecture hall, circa um, 1275. Hmm. So you could say that reading with the Glossa Ordinaria is reading along with the communion of the saints. Oh, yes, I think you put it just right, yes. You said earlier that uh, your your venture into medieval interpretation uh, began with Wycliffe and, and worked back, if I remember rightly. Uh, and for me, I, you know, raised raised within a Protestant tradition. I have my story of the Reformation and how it relates to what came before it. And we typically talk about Wycliffe as someone who was our guy come, you know, a, uh, about a century and a half early. <laughs> um, yes, right. But in what, ways is, in what ways is Wycliffe thoroughly medieval? And in what ways um, uh, is he perhaps... Uh, distinct within his own time that made that made his thought so so productive for later uh, Reformation thinkers. Well, it's interesting because um, the Wycliffe was often given the uh, the sobriquet Morning Star of the Reformation, right. um, and. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, and Jan Hock was often linked to Wycliffe as his sort of junior partner in all of this over in Bohemia. Um, it's interesting that Luther, for instance, who, who knew of Wycliffe and Hock, uh, had a certain admiration for them, but he also, he clearly recognized, he said as much that um, they were calling for moral reform within the church. They didn't really understand the, um, the revolution in doctrine that was needed. And that, so Luther himself would not have seen them as, as forerunners in that sense. Um, I think it's really with John Fox and his Book of Martyrs that Wycliffe and the Wycliffeites in England are elevated, therefore, to this, um, this position as as sort of proto-reformers, um, because much of what they're praised for, their attack on the abuses of the church and so forth, were commonplace. It would be hard to find anyone in the late Middle Ages who didn't complain about the corruption of the late medieval church. Yeah. Um, but Wycliffe, nevertheless, was, I believe, um, and I've tried to spell out in, in some things I've written, um, he believed in the uh, fourfold reading of Scripture. He was very much committed to reading the Fathers. Um, Wycliffe's views on the Eucharist were admittedly out of sync with late 14th century academia, but they... Um, he rejected transubstantiation largely on 
uh, on metaphysical grounds and also some exegetical grounds, but affirms the real presence nevertheless. Uh, but certainly, um, I would say that when you look at Wycliffe within the larger continuum, uh, he's controversial and he says things in some very stark terms, but that was also part of the age. After all, Wycliffe is writing during the time of the papal schism when people, everyone was speaking very loudly and very sharply. Um, I can't do justice to Wycliffe's legacy, obviously, uh, in a couple of minutes. But I think if you go back and, and even if you just read the portion in, in this book um, on biblical interpretation, you see that uh, Wycliffe is, in fact, calling upon ideas of the literal sense and the inviolability of scripture in ways that resonated throughout the tradition. I would just lastly say about Wycliffe that one of the reasons that he championed the authority of scripture and wrote a book called um, On the Truth of Holy Scripture is not because people devalued the Bible and he was resurrecting the authority of the Bible. It was largely to uh, combat certain errors he found within the school system itself. And, and Jean Gerson, the great conciliarist, fully agreed with much of that even if he was an enemy of Wycliffe after the fact. Um, but Wycliffe also, as a theologian, was very wary of the increasing power of the canon lawyers in the church. And many theologians were upset about this. So by championing scripture, which is the province of theologians over canon law, which is the province of lawyers, Wycliffe was trying to reassert the role of the theologian in the church over and against over and against the lawyers and the sort of takeover of the church by canon law. So that's a long answer, maybe not completely on target, but. Yeah, I, 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 I found that, uh, as you said, I, I, I really enjoyed, um, I, I appreciated that section for putting Wycliffe um, back in the place in which he was actually writing. Um, uh, and uh, that 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 John Fox style valorization of of, uh, of figures like him, um, uh, I think has led Protestants to to value and admire uh, uh, John John Wycliffe without actually fully understanding what he was about in his own time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I just yeah. Dear listener, go go get the book and read the Wycliffe. Read the Wycliffe book. It's it's good stuff. <laughs> well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, sir. Um, but the last chapter, you make um, uh, some some sort of beginning moves of of saying how might medieval biblical interpretation uh, be relevant today, and uh, you argue that the way they are reading books is not actually that alien to uh, modern hermeneutics. Ha, ha, make, make that case here. <laughs> well, um, I should say, first of all, that uh, my... I, I, want, I wanted readers, modern readers, to see why reading about medieval biblical interpretation would even be worth their time, in other words, and not simply an historical relic. The bulk of the book, indeed, 90% or 95% of the book is just a straight analysis of, of medieval exegesis. But yes, in that last portion, I try to sort of make the case for why you might still be interested in this today. And I think that modern literary theory has, in fact, um, championed the idea in the last 40 years or 50 years or so, certainly, that, that any text is really multivalent. 
and that one is constantly evoking uh, new meanings from the text. One reader comes to the text again and again and finds new meaning. Multiple readers find multiple meanings. And that doesn't mean that they're all mutually exclusive. Maybe they can complement one another. So I think that's basically a, a trend in much um, modern literary theory is to allow for a kind of expansiveness of interpretation and meaning. But I also, um, I make a brief um, uh, reference to uh, the great German philosopher, um, Hans-Georg Gadamer, who talks about the idea in which the reader and the text are in the constant conversation with one another, that I come to the text with certain preconceptions. I have to if I'm going to make anything meaningful out of it. But in my encounter with the text, I'm also changed by the text. And therefore, I'm a different reader when I come back again. And that this is a constant circular, circular process or cyclical process um, in which I'm always encountering the text anew, and it is also shaping me. And I think, well, boy, Hugh of St. Victor, among others, would have said something. They did say something very much like that, um, that I come in a certain, with a certain disposition, um, as one who is open to the word, who's one, one who is open to the spirit, and that going back to that idea that we talked about a kind of Christological core at the center of the two testaments and at the center of history. And, um, and I allow, therefore, the, uh, the text to then speak to me, that this sacred text, this sacred author is now speaking to me and transforming my heart, transforming my soul, so that I will be a different person after that encounter with the text. And this is going to happen um, again and again um, in this lifetime, if I remain open to the text and allow it truly to, to form me. And, you know, in that sense, almost a kind of Christiformity coming through the text. That's really good. That's really, really good. Well, sir, I very much appreciate you being willing to come on a Christian pro uh, Humanist Profiles and talk about your really excellent book, Introducing Medieval Biblical Interpretation. Uh, but on this podcast, we like to show hospitality by letting our guests have the last word. Is there any last point that you would want our listeners to have in mind as we conclude this conversation? Well, I think maybe in some ways in summation of, of, of what I've been speaking about here in, in brief, that um, really I would say that the spirit, I think, of, of the medieval reading of the text, and we t touched on this earlier, is the idea that you shouldn't read the text in isolation, as an isolated um, subject objectifying a text, that you should read it in a as part of a larger conversation. I think, um, I mean, perhaps you could say uh, one of the one of the ills of modernity in general has been this kind of hyper-individualization, this atomization of society to the point where the human person is a kind of um, isolated and uh, center of, of, of willing apart from any other constraint or even complementarity. So, if you enter into the medieval reading of scripture, um, I think that you, you enter into a way of reading within the tradition. You'll find that when you read these medieval texts, the people you are reading are in fact part of a larger conversation and they're calling you into that larger conversation um, with 
the communion of saints and um, and indeed ultimately with the the Holy Spirit who is who is um, likewise speaking to you and um, as Saint Paul would say also sort of instructing you on how to on how to pray. Thank you for that, sir. That's I find that really, really helpful and frankly one of the reasons why I was motivated to uh, to read this book in the first place is is wanting to be able to see myself in that way. Well, dear listeners, that's all the con- all the time we have for conversation today, and I wanted to thank you, Dr. Levy, for being willing to come on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. And I hope that you did too, dear listener. Uh, cr- Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. So if you want to send uh, any feedback on this show, send it to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post it on the show notes uh, for for this episode when they post on christianhumanist.org, our blog and website. Uh, you can also uh, post it on our Facebook page because we have social media too. In the meanwhile, uh, as I said, Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>